From the Pulliam Center for Contemporary Media at DePaul University, I'm JNP, and this is Modern Media. My goal is always to challenge people's flat understandings of what a thing is. So whether that's an artifact of pop culture or the entire state of Idaho, think more, think with more nuance. Don't settle into you know your beliefs of, of what something is or what it means or why it matters. My guest today is Anne Helen Peterson, a senior culture writer and Western correspondent for BuzzFeed. She's the author of the recent book, Too Fat, Too Slutty, Too Loud, The Rise and Reign of the Unruly Woman. She holds a PhD in media studies from the University of Texas, where she studied the industrial history of the gossip industry. She's also the author of a previous book, Scandals of Classic Hollywood, Sex, Deviance, and Drama from the Golden Age of American Cinema. And Helen Peterson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I wanted to start by asking you to talk a little bit about the dual existence that you have and how your academic training in some ways has prepared you or is part of how you approach your work as a journalist and how you see those two things intersecting. I think the way that I conceive of my academic training now is as a foundation that I can build, you know, the scaffolding, the the structure of all of this other work that I do. So sometimes it might seem like my work has nothing to do with my academic training, like this big feature I just wrote on um, bachelorettes in Nashville, which was also about gentrification and, you know, a whole host of things. But the, my whole approach, my whole framework to that issue is to approach it from this cultural studies lens that, first of all, does not look at these women as the Antichrist, right? Yeah. Like, to try to think, like, okay, so people are gaining pleasure through the way that they are visiting this city, through this new sort of tourism. What's going on here? Like, to try to break that down. But then also to look at it through this very intersectional, and I mean that both in terms of, you know, what we've come to understand it now in terms of gender and race and sexuality and that sort of thing, but also looking at it from a historical lens. So like, how did we get to this point where Nashville is what it is? And then even just bringing in pretty basic, well, things that we as academics think of as basic theory. So like Veblen, which, and really it's just that idea that leisure is not necessarily leisure until we document it for others. And so when he was writing about it in the late 20th century, it was about, you know, whether you were sending postcards or you were writing letters about it or even, you know, early pictures. And now it's Instagram. Well, one of the reasons I asked the question was that we often try to tell our students that journalism uh, is a transferable skill to everything, but also I try to emphasize that academic training is great training for journalism, right? So that the skills you learn as an academic, the critical skills, the research skills, all serve journalists very well. Yes, absolutely. You know, we don't have a journalism major here at DePauw, but we actually produce great journalists, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And some of that has to do with liberal arts training, and I know you're a product of a liberal arts education. I am, yeah. um, So... Carrying on this conversation about labor in some ways, I wanted to ask you just to talk about your own work because I'm always sort of fascinated by what people do every day. So, you know, it seems to me that you're managing a lot of things and sort of a contemporary media environment requires someone like you to manage a lot of things. So you've written books, but you also do audio books and you have Twitter and Instagram and Facebook presence. You're constantly writing on BuzzFeed, and you're managing a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk a little bit about how you do manage that and what kind of 
what your labor looks like as a contemporary media practitioner? I still work less than I did as an academic, <laughs> which good. is something that's hard to understand, I think, oftentimes. And that's just because, like, as an academic, you're also serving multiple masters in terms of you're trying to publish and produce new research. You're often also on the job market. Um, you're trying to prep for new classes, write grants, and then grade. <laughs> and especially in the humanities at a liberal arts college, you're doing a lot of detailed grading. Um, and then also just a ton of office hour work that yeah. doing that emotional labor of connecting with students, which again, in a smaller liberal arts environment takes a lot of work. So, uh, you know, I think a lot of that emotional labor is now transferred online for me in terms of, you know, you have to you don't have to. One way to become a well-known and well-regarded cultural journalist is to have a presence you know, on social media where people af- associate a certain type of writing, a certain approach with your name, right? And they follow you and they, and they not just click when you, you come up in the feed because the algorithm is unreliable, but they seek you out. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, different ways that I try to um, cultivate that. One is I try to provide services, like services added. I, whenever I read something that I find compelling, like every week I have a thread on Twitter where, that I add to over the course of the week of articles that I've read that I have found compelling in some way. I have a Facebook group called Celebrity Gossip Academic Style, which was started back in 2007 mm-hmm. when I was writing my old blog during graduate school. And that group now is... 40,000 members and I think of it as a place for conversation um, for debate but also a non-toxic space a lot of stuff I do on my phone uh, because I'm in transit a lot I travel a ton for reporting stories um, but then also to do things like come here so this past the month of March I was home two days and that's like really that that's outrageous like that's not normal um, but to give you an example of what I did, like, I went to Seattle to see some friends because, like, you want to have friends still. And was home for a day. And then I went to Nashville for five days. Because the other thing about this sort of reporting that I do that's trying to do this, like, in-depth stuff, you can't just helicopter in there for two days. You know, I had to – five days was the minimum of time that I had to be in there. And then I went from there to Boise where I covered both the school walkout and then they're um, trying to get Medicaid expansion on the ballot there. And then I'm profiling the first Native American woman to run for governor. So I was there for four days, went home for one day, and then went to New York because I need to check back in with the people that I work with at BuzzFeed. And we also have a group of, we call them Emerging Writing Fellows who every year joined BuzzFeed for three months. I was there in New York to hang out with them, came home, was home for like two days, and then I went to UT Dallas to do a similar talk to this, came home, and now I'm here. What I'm getting from that is, A, that it's still less work than academia, which is amazing to me, but also that there are just ways that you have to sort of be aware of all sorts of different kinds of audiences and their expectations and needs and to kind of keep your name 
viable Mm -hmm. because BuzzFeed needs you to do that, Mm -hmm. right? And you have books out there that you want people to read. And Mm -hmm. there's all these different ways that people have to sort of labor differently now in order to to keep a name out there in ways that perhaps someone like, uh, I'm thinking of Robert Warshow, right? I'm thinking of other sort of cultural critics who would look at popular culture didn't have to do in the 50s, right? Um, I wonder if we could pick up on one little thread there that is about the range of things that you cover. Mm-hmm. You do a lot of celebrity coverage, a lot of pop culture stuff that we'll talk about in a second, but also you have started covering more sort of traditional political things. Um, you were at Standing Rock, mm-hmm. uh, you're in Boise, uh, you were in Montana covering the special election. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you switch between those two modes of one being a sort of popular culture and one being sort of more political culture and how you sort of toggle between those and what maybe you see as the relationships between them. You know, I think I reproach them very similarly in terms of, like, I see the only way that I can write about a topic is if I, like, take a giant net and throw it as wide as possible. So when I'm writing about a celebrity, you know, I try to read everything, every interview that they've done, major interview that they've done over the course of their career. And I try to not only watch, like, the primary text, so, like, the movies, but then also other things, like, you know, you have to look at memes that people have made about that celebrity, like, the sort of extra textual information. And then I also read secondary scholarships, so stuff like from academia, that if someone has written something about that star. Uh, And then when I'm doing a political thing, like, it's the same thing. I have to just... I need to talk to as many people as I possibly can. I need to have access to as many different, um, you know, kind of social institutions in a place that I can. So, like, I did a big story on neo-Nazis in Whitefish, Montana. Some of them live there, but most of them do not. But they were trying to basically intimidate the people of this town. So when I go there, you know, I'm there for a week. I talk to people who run the arts center. I talk to people who run, like, who are in charge of tourism. I talk to the county commissioner. I go to, I went to church three different times. Uh, You drive all over. Like, I think academia and other things in my life taught me to be a very observant and detail-focused person. So I'm like, oh, that's so, like, the way that they are, you know, the rhetoric of this campaign for sheriff, those are the sorts of things. Or, like, the school bond, like, what do the signs look like? What are they, how are they framing why kids matter in this town? Everything doesn't necessarily end up in the final piece, but it contributes to my greater understanding of that place and what's Mm -hmm. going on there. Um, And so, like, when you're covering a state election, like, when the, because the thing about that special election in Montana is it's for the sole congressional seat Montana has one One. congressperson. And this is a state, okay, there's only a million people, but it's the fourth biggest state in the United States. It's massive. So that first week that I went there, I just drove. And every night I stayed somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And then I also talked to people. I ask meta questions. So I'm like, people always get things wrong about Montana. Like, what do they get wrong? Tell me what they get wrong. So asking them to kind of participate in that yeah, that's analysis a great as well. Does working for BuzzFeed, as opposed to, say, a traditional newspaper or um, a magazine, do you think they afford you a certain kind of freedom? Uh, are there different expectations that you can imagine that BuzzFeed has for you in terms of allowing you to do the kind of analysis you want to do? So if I wrote for the New York Times, for example, you get access you, to phenomenal people. 
um, and phenomenal stars. I could interview basically anyone that I wanted. If you go into a town or something like that, like you can be like, I'm with the New York Times, and that authenticates you in a really yeah. interesting way. But you still, even though most people read the New York Times online, it's also in the print edition. So you have these column constrictions of 1,200, 1,400 words. Um, So I think that there's just that actual space constriction, which I don't think that something should be long just because it can be long, but oftentimes there's 500 words that can make the difference between, you know, adding that nuance or adding that color, that description. So that's one very basic thing. Uh, Other than that, I think that BuzzFeed is always challenging people's understanding of it. So... And I like being the sort of person who one day writes about a celebrity and then the next day writes, like, a serious political piece. And not that my celebrity work isn't also serious, but someone like me is in many ways perfectly at home in that sort of high-low environment. You know, one of the things that BuzzFeed very early on said is, like, we want to take serious things and be playful with them and we want to take unserious things and be serious about them. That's a great transition into my next uh question or maybe my request of you. So I wanted to ask you if you would read a passage from your most recent book that I think speaks to something about that high-low distinction. So if you wouldn't mind reading a a passage from the introduction. um, Yeah. Here's Anne Helen Peterson reading from the introduction to her book, Too Fat, Too Slutty, Too Loud, The Rise and Reign of the Unruly Woman. Uh, Here we go. Celebrities are our most visible and binding embodiments of ideology at work. The way we pinpoint and police representations of everything from blackness to queerness, from femininity to pregnancy. Which is why the success of these unruly women is inextricable from the confluence of attitudes towards women in the 2010s. The public re-embrace of feminism set against a backdrop of increased legislation of women's bodies, the persistence of the income gap, the policing of how women's bodies should look and act in public, and the election of Trump. Through this lens, unruliness can be viewed as an amplification of anger about a climate that publicly embraces equality but does little to enact change. It's no wonder we have such mixed feelings about these women. They're constant reminders of the chasm between what we think we believe and how we actually behave. I love that passage because I, for a lot of reasons, one of which um, is that it's such a clear articulation of what you are doing, right, of why we're, we should be reading this. Um, at the same time, it feels almost like a necessary thing you have to say, yeah. right? Um, and because I think part of this is that your writing, and I think in some ways your audience, toggles between or, or includes a lot of people, some of whom are academic-minded, they expect this level from you, but some of whom are reading this because they're interested in Serena Williams and stuff about, you know, Melissa McCarthy, and they're not really grounded in the academic world. And I think this kind of passage is a great way to balance that. And I wonder if you could talk about, A, writing these kinds of things and explaining in some ways that framework. Yeah. You know, I think like the beginning of this passage that I read is very much the sort of I have to explain what I mean when I talk about analyzing celebrities or like how, you know, celebrities are the most visible and binding embodiments of ideology at work. Like that is celebrity studies. Mm -hmm. And then as I go through that passage, I'm saying a little bit more about what I think is this disconnect that isn't necessarily academic, but just something that needs to be said in terms of we are supposedly in this moment of feminism, but then like why, why is 
inequality is still such a persistent problem? Like, why is misogyny still like a ruling governance of our our society? So I think that like for me now it's become very natural. It's hard for me to break down my thought process even in doing a paragraph like that because it has become just the way that I write. And that happened over the course of grad school really because I started my blog when I was in studying for my comps. Okay. So I was, you know, reading a book a day all through summer and I wasn't really like seeing very much of people like studying for comps, your comprehensive exams is a very isolating experience. And on my blog, what I was doing then was really trying to take the ideas that I was learning in these books and in theory and apply them to things that were around me in the celebrity world at that time. But it was the beginning, the baby steps of trying to combine these larger theoretical ideas with mm-hmm. a more accessible style. Well, and, and then in your process of doing that, you've managed to sort of hone this skill where now other people who aren't necessarily initiated into this kind of language can have access to the kinds of thinking that we're doing about ideology. Now, ideology doesn't have to be a scary word, no. even though a lot of readers will say, "Ugh, you know, here we go again. Right? Yeah. There's another academic trying to make something unenjoyable that I'm enjoying, <laughs> right? And, of course, we know that trope. I actually, I think that ideology has been somewhat naturalized, and I don't know what, what's responsible for that. Maybe the fact that there are a lot of people, like cultural critics and public intellectuals who are using it in yeah. their writing – I do think that there's it's the only one. Like words mm-hmm. like hegemony you still can't no, get away with. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, but ideology, that's one you know how I know it is that my editors don't flag it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So so let's talk about those those readers for a second, yeah. right? And and sort of going back to managing, you know, your social media and all, you get a lot of feedback from readers. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed it too when it, like if I'm looking at a book review on Amazon of an academic book, invariably somewhere along the line it's like well, I got this book because I was interested in television, but boy, did they make it boring and dry and <laughs> academic. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you manage expectations for your cultural writing and how you handle feedback that doesn't necessarily appreciate the kind of effort you're putting into analysis. I think some academic books, especially about something like television, it's hard because you know someone might really, they're really interested in television. And then it's almost as if the book arrives and it's in a different language. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just the academic jargon. It's also the entire approach. It's not saying like, here, let me make you think a little bit harder and differently about this this book. It's more like even the, the, you know, the beginning of many academic chapters and papers are like, in this chapter, I will argue that this is this and this and this and this. And is is also you know, gesturing to antecedents and theoretical work that is completely foreign to this mm-hmm. reader. Yeah. So they're thrown out of yeah. the text in a way that it's not necessarily, I think, that they're anti-intellectual. Mm. It's that there's no entrance for it to that, it. You know what I mean? And thank you for that, because yeah. I think that's a great way to, to say that, because there is a way of academics kind of naturally pushing other people out who don't get the language. And you're right. We, books written or articles written for other academics is not hailing the... Yeah non-academic reader and saying, yeah. come on in. It's basically saying, no, 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 stay out of here. So that's a really great way to put that. So I'm also thinking about the way, though, that you get a lot of criticism online, as anybody, any public figure writing about popular culture mm-hmm. does. So I was thinking about the Army Hammer stuff, you yeah. know, the, the piece you wrote about the years of trying to make Army Hammer happen. And there was a lot of, there's always a lot of pushback mm-hmm. toward you, not solely, right? You get a lot of positive, but there's a lot of pushback from readers who seem to want you to kind of just 
hey, it's just a TV star or it's just mm-hmm. a movie star. What are you doing? Right. But it's almost always just when it's negative, right? So, yeah. like, the thing about Army Hammer's stardom is I was really interrogating the privilege of whiteness that was at yes. the heart of, of his second chances. Um, whereas I wrote an article about Charlize Theron in the summer where I was looking at basically how she's super underrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. I, and I also wrote one about Nicole Kidman that was like, how many times does Nicole Kidman have to prove herself? This was around the time of Big Little Lies and her performance yeah. and that. People would say like, oh, it's a revelation. Like people had forgotten every single time that Nicole Kidman is good. Um, and why we don't remember that female stars other than Meryl Streep are good. Yeah. And, and how, especially if there's someone like Charlize Theron, who's beautiful, these other discourses become the primary discourses of who they are. So when I write, man, this star is underappreciated and like, here's the nuance that you should add, people respond really positively. Sure. But if I'm asking them to think in a more critical way or, you know, to say, like, well, this is maybe a negative way to, to think about this star, that's when people are like, you're being mean, and think of analysis as meanness. Even though, you know, it's the same tool. Like, I think of it as the same gardening tool. It's just, like, sometimes, you know, the vegetable's a little bit more, like, bitter that you, that you hoe up. <laughs> yeah. So why do you think that, that sometimes analysis and meanness get paired up? I think that it's looking closely at something, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, there is that maxim of, like, if you don't have anything nice to say, then don't say anything. But then also just the idea that, like, picking, like, that, even that that phrase, picking something apart. Yeah. It sounds like you're a carnivore who is, like, devouring the thing and wants Mm -hmm. to ruin it. Destroying it. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I think of it more as you're separating it into, like, a beautiful meal. I don't know. Mm-hmm. This is, like, I don't think of celebrities as something I should eat. So the metaphor falls apart. But at the same time, that's just how I think of his analysis as enriching instead of destructive. Yeah. And if we, and if we start from your basic premise, right, that celebrities and stars are constructions, right, that what you're picking apart is the construction, not the person, Right. right. To the extent that they can be separated, mm-hmm. right? But there is a construction that goes around building a star persona yeah. rather than an actual person who lives and breathes and, and does right. all those things. So. Well, and it's hard because sometimes the star is not in control of what's happened with their persona. Mm-hmm. So much of it is the way that either their team, right, their, their publicist and their agent and that sort of thing have decided or their studio. And then also the way that the media around them you know, they can say things in interviews all the time that get edited out of the profiles because they don't conform to the way that that person has come to be understood. And it's much easier for us when we're looking at historical stars to be like, oh, well, they were under contract to the studio. So, of course, there was this mm-hmm. disjuncture between who the star really was and what their image was. Sure. And I think, you know, 50, 100 years from now, we're going to be saying the same thing about the stars of, of this moment. Yeah. Like, of course, there's like who Kim Kardashian is on Instagram and who the real Kim Kardashian is. But it, in the moment, it's much harder to be cognizant of the processes of mediation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to wrap up with a question that every graduate student gets asked, every academic gets asked, which is, (laughs) so what, right? So why should, why celebrity studies, why popular culture, why any of this? Why does it matter? You know, I always think of the last few paragraphs of any of my pieces as the the so what. Mm -hmm. And when I was teaching, that's how I would frame their, the essays that I would have students write is like, 
it is the thing that ties it all together. And But then also, instead of just repeating what you've said in the last five paragraphs, which is sometimes how we're taught in high school, yeah. a conclusion should work, it is turning the screw to ask further questions, but also to, to show what the, the greater relevance of that thing is. And so I think that whether we're talking about celebrities or we're talking about politics in rural areas, what I'm covering right now, my goal is always to challenge people's flat understandings of what a thing is. So whether that's an artifact of pop culture or the entire state of Idaho, think more, think with more nuance. And in order to, to do that, you know, you have to put yourself into a posture of openness, of like every day I'm willing to not only have my beliefs challenged, but also to add to them and to be curious about it. Um, but then people, the, you know, the literature, the writing, the journalists, the academics have to be out there giving you, you know, the tools to do that. Well, Anne Helen Peterson, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And that'll do it for another installment of Modern Media. My guest today has been Anne Helen Peterson, senior culture writer and Western correspondent for BuzzFeed and the author of the recent book, Too Fat, Too Slutty, Too Loud, The Rise and Reign of the Unruly Woman. For more on Anne Helen Peterson and her work, visit our website, www.modernmediapodcast.org. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Until next time, I'm JNP, and this is Modern Media.